0: You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Miss You Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Kills. I was having a conversation with my friend Jimmy yesterday. Um, Jimmy's a co-laborer with me at our church. We've served together at our church staff for almost 10 years now. And uh, along with Renee, another veteran pastor at our church, uh, was one of the very first students, actually were were the first students that went through my Managing Leadership Anxiety class back in 2012 and 2013 when we really first got going. You know, I remember back then um, I had been using these tools somewhat informally in my own life. And then as our staff were growing and as we were at that point in our life, as our church was moving from being a portable struggling church plant into uh, moving into our own building and I knew the pressures and everything would really start to increase as we moved into the building. I knew that my staff needed some development help. And so I, I got Jimmy and Renee and a couple of other staff and I sat them down and I said, hey, uh, when I was really young, I, I went through this experience as a chaplain where they taught us this thing called systems theory and it really helped me and I've been using it informally. Would you guys be willing to be guinea pigs to see if I can first of all, teach this class or, or facilitate an experience for you. And second, the second part of the guinea pig idea was the, the reason it worked in chaplaincy is because we were plunged into trauma and death every day. Uh, could it be, I asked, that local church leadership provides enough trauma and pain uh, to, to make systems really work? And uh, they were game, Jimmy and Renee and the others. And that's how how everything that I'm doing now got started And over the years, we've refined the materials. I've worked really hard to measure success. Like, can people walk the path we're offering, right? Like, so many times people have like emotional health tools, but you you struggle to access them. You struggle to get them in your life. And so one of my great passions has been making sure that what I'm teaching is accessible. It's tangible. It's a step-by-step process, I never want to make it simplistic, but I do want to simplify it. Anyway, I'm getting a bit off topic here. Uh, All that to say is fast forward, and now Jimmy and Renee are two of my veteran coaches. They're actually certified to coach my tools and teach them. They both have coaching clients themselves. So, okay, that's the context for this very long-winded story. Sitting down with Jimmy yesterday because I've asked him if he would uh, film some modules inside my Capable Life community that focus on the Enneagram. And yesterday we were having another meeting really fleshing out um, you know, what he was going to teach and how we get people into the Enneagram and how the Enneagram interacts with systems theory, the theory that I teach. And of course, what's central to both of us too is how it interacts with the gospel. And at one point we were deep in the weeds on the Enneagram. We're looking at holy ideas and we were looking at uh, stances and, and some of the deeper aspects of the Enneagram and how nuanced it is. And Jimmy identifies as an Enneagram one. So he's, he's often making sure it's just right. And he, he resists generalized statements because there's exceptions, stuff like that. At one point, we were talking about how it can feel complicated, this work, right? Like, man, it, it shouldn't be this hard to follow Jesus, this kind of idea. Do we really need the nuance of the Enneagram? Do we really need all these systems theory tools that, that were both forged? And we were both just commenting that, you know, like, really, you only need the tools that I'm teaching on this podcast and those of you who bring me in to do workshops, you you really only need them in as far as they help you experience freedom in Christ. Once you're experiencing freedom in Christ, once the love of Jesus that is yours to have, once you're encountering it as often as you're proclaiming it to others, you don't need to go any further with me or you don't need to go any further with, for example, what Jimmy's doing on the Enneagram or, or other people. But the problem is we all have this narrative inside us, the, the stuff in us that gets in the way. And I think the number one problem is most of us are not aware of how much it gets in the way. I would say that was the biggest gift of chaplaincy for me is it exposed faster than anything else that's ever exposed it for me it exposed how how bankrupt i was how how shallow i thought my faith was deep until i got into chaplaincy and simply being in the presence of death helping people to die being in the presence of physical trauma emotional trauma having to be with people in the worst moments of their life oftentimes having to give people some of the worst news they've ever heard that, that does something to you and, and what it does is it turns this bubbling collective inside of me and it turns it into a volcano that's erupting and suddenly I'm spilling all over myself. And suddenly I'm in the room where somebody's dying and I'm unable to stop myself from speaking because I can't handle the silence. I can't handle the internal pressure I feel to do something. I can't handle, for example... The internal pressure I feel that if somebody is not okay, I must do something so they can be okay. All of these things. The gift I was given is that I was very young and I think quite immature when I was first plunged into this world. And after, gosh, resisting it and fighting it for about 10 or 12 weeks, if my wife were on the podcast right now, she would say, oh man, this chaplaincy, like Steve Speaks nostalgically about it but the first 10 or 12 weeks was a fight he would come home and say this thing's crazy this idea that i should be figuring out what's going on under the surface in me i know i'm jumping around a bit and i know on an audio show it can be hard to follow right when somebody's kind of stream of consciousness like i am right now but i'm just mindful of the conversation jimmy and i had yesterday where we were both kind of chuckling at the depth of our tools that we've developed and how much freedom we've found in contrast with the seeming simplicity of the people in the New Testament, they, they didn't have this complex psychological world that they seem to grapple with, right? Like, my beef with the Bible is that the authors of Scripture never really get us into the interior life of the followers of Jesus. So sometimes we see their fears and their proclivities. Like, like you can study the Apostle Peter and you can... Generally, figure out his impulsiveness like if his virtue is courage and boldness then his vice is impulsiveness and putting his foot in his mouth and thinking you know speaking before he thinks things like that but by and large the, the the characters in the new testament they're not as fleshed out as our own complex interior world but here's the thing they they had an advantage over us i think the mistake we make is that we tend to compare ourselves to the disciples in the Bible, and we decide that we are the second-class followers of Jesus, but we don't realize the competitive advantage they had over us, like Peter physically witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Uh, I really think, if I were living in the Roman Empire, where the average life expectancy is, you know, 28 to 35 years of age, something like that, where it's illegal to be a Christian, you lose your head, you get fed to the lions later in history if you're a follower of Jesus where if you're not Pax Romana, you are a persecuted minority, where uh, a simple bacteria could take you out quickly because there's no antibiotics back then, all of these conditions. And also, I had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. I think my following of Jesus would be much simpler. But in reality, 2,000 years later, we live in a very sophisticated world, a very complex world, where we're profoundly shaped by our culture where our family of origin has a big impact on the way we see ourselves, where the messages of our culture, whatever culture you're listening in, the messages of our culture have a profound impact on us. I I think we need these sophisticated tools. For those of you listening, you know, as you've been journeying along with me, maybe at one point you're like, is this worth it? All of this work. I would just say that you're already doing work whether you're aware of it or not. You just have to choose the kind of hard work you're willing to do you know before I was a chaplain I was working very hard I just didn't know it I didn't realize how much effort I put into image management how much I would suppress my inner critic how the story I told myself how my assumptions my expectations of myself but also the assumptions that others placed on me the expectations that other people placed on me, how much that kept me trapped like a slave. And that if I just had the courage to pause and look at what's going on, I could actually encounter the freedom and the peace and the love that Jesus Christ offers. So many of us, and I think particularly faith leaders, we really do struggle with that gap, don't we? The gap between what we believe and what we experience. The gap between what we proclaim and what we experience. Actually, this tool today is going to be pretty brief. We're going to talk about differentiation of self through the lens of enmeshment today. Episode 122, we started this three part series where we looked at differentiation of self through the lens of detachment. You can go back and take a listen to that. This is part two. Part three is coming up in a couple of weeks. Where we're going to actually look about what differentiation of self is. You know, some of you listen to this, you're very familiar with that phrase. And others of you, you're like, what is he talking about? What is this thing called differentiation of self? Well, you can Google it, you can YouTube it, uh, you can go back and listen to other episodes, you could search my podcast for it. Differentiation of self, it's considered the fundamental cornerstone of this theory I teach systems theory. And it's, it's a very difficult thing because it's so conceptual. So even now, as I've been teaching differentiation for over 10 years, I've been teaching it formally. I've been trying to live it, boy, for 25 years now, teaching it formally for 10. I'm still learning how to teach it in a way that you can access it. But one of the things that I found helpful is to teach its opposite. So the last time we talked about it, episode 122, We talked about one opposite extreme, which is detachment. And now we're going to swing wildly to the other extreme, which is enmeshment. And then next episode, when we chat about it, I'm going to sit in the middle and actually teach what differentiation is and the five steps that you can practice to become a more differentiated person. I'll give you a simplistic definition right now. Differentiation is simply the ability to be exactly who you are And to be well with that, without being caught up in your own expectations and assumptions of yourself that are false, and without being caught up in the expectations and assumptions of others that are false. That's definitely a challenge for me as a pastor. I live constantly under the guise of my own assumptions and expectations about myself, how I show up as a pastor, every sermon, what it should be like, how it should both at the same time change the world but not be a big deal so I'm not all wrapped up in myself, the, the push-pull of preaching. But also, particularly in these last couple of years, the incredible diverse expectations and assumptions that my congregation hold on me as a pastor, like just the idea that I'm a pastor generates in my people assumptions and expectations on what that means. For some people, it means great therapist. For some people, it means excellent in a hospital room. For some people, it means class A executive leader, incredible Bible interpreter. But even there, even with those assumptions and expectations, oftentimes painting on me the experience with their last pastor, what I call same species syndrome. So some people coming at me wishing that I did more Greek exegesis, for example, Other people coming at me mistrustful because perhaps their last pastor misused power and they felt abused by that person and so they come into my congregation walking on eggshells and even maybe putting me on eggshells and so on. Differentiation of self is the capacity to notice when I'm not living out of who I really am, who God's created me to be, but when I'm living out of my own assumptions and expectations I place on myself and or when I'm living out of the assumptions and expectations that others place on me. Now, my particular personality type, my particular wiring, I tend to be sensitive, I feel deeply, I'm highly intuitive, and also I'm a chronic, rabid, people pleaser. So all of that gets... Highly pressurized. Like there are some pastors; they just don't really care what others think. Now, hey, let me just say, there are some personality types they they speak so passionately about how they don't care what people think. That's the sign that they really care what people think. They can't handle that they care so deeply what people think, and so they detach. That's our last episode. They actually swing and act detached, and so you can always be on the lookout for that. Right, that person. To quote Shakespeare, "Methinks thou doth protest." too much. I remember, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor and he, he's, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm like, Oh yes, you do. You care so deeply that you've had to create this persona that you don't care at all. But there are those people that they just genuinely, they're just not that driven by the opinions of others. But for most of us, uh, what we struggle with when we're not differentiated, when we're not truly who we are, uh, we struggle with this thing called enmeshment. Enmeshment. And we're just going to take like 10 minutes today to talk about enmeshment. Enmeshment is captured in that wonderful phrase when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. In the Bible, Matthew records enmeshment in the birth narrative of Jesus, where where Matthew says, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. In other words, Jerusalem's well being is wrapped up in Herod's well being. Uh, Those of you who are empaths those of you more highly intuitive you're very tuned in to what's going on inside other people maybe you've been in a room and everyone's having a good time and laughing and then uh, you know sally walks into the room and suddenly the, the the room just cools down because sally's really upset and you're attuned to sally and you no longer feel okay to be happy because she's upset That would be the sign that you struggle with enmeshment. Those of you who are people pleasers like I am, anytime you've disappointed somebody, anytime you've let them down, even if you didn't really let them down, but they think you've let them down. And now you find yourself shape-shifting, scurrying around, sacrificing yourself. Maybe you're wearing out your calendar, you're pouring yourself out too much because you cannot be okay knowing that that person is disappointed in you. Maybe you actually did nothing to disappoint them. Maybe their disappointment is because of their own narrative. Maybe they have an expectation on you that is false or untenable. I have some people in our congregation, there's no question, that I can never live up to their expectation on me. Really, uh, they, they fulfill the old idea that leadership is letting people down at a pace they can stand. I've got just a handful of people in my congregation like that. They're always chronically disappointed in me. If I'm not differentiated and I know they're disappointed in me, whether I try to meet with them and so they can feel it or whether I'm just in my own brain and I'm, I'm expending energy and well-being on them, that's enmeshment. Enmeshed personalities tend to get wrapped up and caught up in the worlds of other people. And so really on this three podcast episode on differentiation, what we're helping you do is trying to locate yourself on the spectrum. On one extreme, if if you will, the left wing, I don't mean politically, I just mean like on the left side of the spectrum is detachment, where you are numb to the feelings and well-being of others. And what we were talking about in the last episode is maybe your tendency is because you Can't handle getting caught up in others, you swing wildly to detachment. Then, as you go through the spectrum, you cross through the happy middle of differentiation. You go all the way to the right, which is enmeshment, where if somebody is not okay or somebody is not okay with you, you can't rest, you can't be okay. That's enmeshment. Maybe for you, it's less about whether they're okay with you or not. Like they're not angry at you, disappointed in you, critical of you. It's just that you have this compulsive need to be there for people when they're not okay. You believe the lie that if somebody somewhere is hurting, you must be the one to be there. That's enmeshment. Enmeshment also goes by the term codependence, particularly those of you who might have been raised in a home where mum or dad or mom and dad had an addiction of some kind. Uh, it would be classic for you that maybe you better with enmeshment or codependence. For example, maybe your dad was an alcoholic and maybe you learned as a kid how to keep dad on the straight and narrow. And maybe that's how you used, for example, humor. Like you you just knew as a kid, if I could make dad laugh, everything might be better. Right? He, he, we wouldn't get into problems or for some of you, particularly if you had a parent with an addiction where they turned abusive, angry, violent, uh, what you learn to do is shape shift yourself so you could become the kind of person they needed you to be so that they wouldn't then uh, set off those feelings. Now, those kinds of things, we're talking about childhood vows at this point, they serve you very well as a kid because you're powerless as a kid and you're doing what you can to survive. The problem is when you get into adulthood And now you find yourself in a meeting with a dominant personality who just has that edge to their voice. Maybe they have a clipped edge to their voice. Maybe the decibels in the voice get louder. Maybe they use hard-edged words. And you suddenly find yourself shape-shifting so that uh, you can lower the temperature in the room. You struggle, for example, to stand up to them or just to see them as a human being. You've made them bigger... In your mind that they really are. That's a more sophisticated way that you might find yourself uh, struggling with enmeshment. Enmeshment's a tricky one. Uh, it's it's a tricky one because what it is is you're changing who you are so that you can remain okay when someone else isn't okay. Or sometimes you are scurrying around, pouring yourself out, sacrificing yourself out because you cannot live at peace while someone else. Isn't okay. I've, of course, done a lot of work with people who have lost loved ones, and I myself have lost loved ones. I'm acquainted with grief as well. And it's a fascinating thing. You can see the enmeshed people coming out of the woodwork, where let's say that a household has a loss and people start coming around, right? They knock on doors and they deliver casseroles and they deliver lasagna, all of that. That's all good. But then there's that person that must be helpful and keeps calling and, and trying to make sure the other person, trying to take the grief away. And that's because you struggle with enmeshment. You don't know how to simply sit with somebody in their grief and have a human-to-human interaction. You have to, if you will, shrink their pain down to a size that you can make it better because you're the kind of person that has an assumption about yourself or an expectation of yourself. I'm the person that makes you feel better, that kind of thing. And on one level, that's a gift. Like maybe you're a very helpful person, but sometimes that crosses over into anxiety because you have to make people feel better for you to be okay. Does that make sense? Man, I'm 23 minutes into this episode, and I kind of get a sense that I'm a bit too stream of consciousness. We're going to publish this one, but we'll see how it goes, how it helps. But I'm just trying to help you locate your enmeshment. For those of us, and I'm definitely in this camp, those of us who struggle with enmeshment, first of all, a few warning signs. You can learn to notice that impulse in yourself to do. And before you just reactively do on autopilot, you can pause and you can use the gift of curiosity and you can also use the gift of prayer. And you can ask the Lord that Psalm 139 prayer. Okay, Lord, search me and examine me. I don't trust myself. Would you show me this impulse that I have right now to go meet with that person, to speak to that person, whether it's to try to change what they think of me or whether it's to make them better. Lord, that impulse, is that of you or is that me operating out of my own anxiety? That's one thing you can do. I don't mean to make that journey sound easy, but if you always have to be there for people, you've forgotten that God has all kinds of people available. God has an army of servants available. It's not all on you. And that sometimes your best well-meaning effort to be there for others is actually unintentionally obnoxious. Okay. Then there's those of us who get enmeshed. We get all caught up in other people. We're always there for them. And at some point along the line, we start moving into self pity. We pour out, we pour out, we pour out. Where, you know, you need us. I'm there. I'll change my plans to be there for you. I'll do what you need. And at some point, I'm saying to myself, well, no one seems to appreciate this. I feel unappreciated. And what we can do is we can then swing wildly into detachment. We go from over enmeshed and almost like, because we're exhausted and almost burned out, we then move into numb and we start singing that gospel, spiritual song. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus, nobody knows what it's like to be me. Isn't anybody noticing how much I'm doing for everybody? And of course, the cruel and liberating truth is that no, no one cares because you're doing it for you. You think all that attention on others is selflessness and you don't realize how much you're doing it for yourself. The need to be helpful, the need to make others okay, all of that, it's for you. And so your journey, once you notice that you struggle with enmeshment, is the liberating freedom of the gospel, that Jesus died so you don't have to scurry around and make everyone okay anymore. I was reading a fiction uh, recently where one of the characters, it really set me up straight. I was reading the character where he was talking about what other people think about him. And he said he had to come to the realization that what others think of me is fundamentally none of my business. What is going on in your head is none of my business. That was really helpful for me as somebody, even after all these years, who still sometimes struggles with I wonder what they think of me, particularly, you know, as a preacher, the preaching is very vulnerable. You kind of, particularly the kind of preaching I do, which is generally self-disclosing. I'll come off the stage and I do have to do some work to be okay with myself after I preach. Uh, But just the idea that, okay, Lord, what other people think of me is not my business. In the capable life language we use, that's what we call the third space, the space inside the other person. And the space inside the other person is fundamentally not my business. I can come alongside that person, but I don't have to carry their burden. Most of us who struggle with enmeshment, when we think of loving people, we think of carrying burdens. We don't think so much as walking alongside them as they carry their burden. We even use Christian lingo, carry one another's burdens. Those of you who struggle with enmeshment, a little bit of homework this week, I'm going to encourage you, pick a gospel If you like to do efficient homework, pick the Gospel of Mark, because that's the shortest. Mark gets right to the point. And look at all of the times where Jesus helps somebody and ask yourself this question. How many times is he carrying their burden? How many times is he walking alongside them as they carry their burden? The answer is going to shock you, enmesh people. More often, Jesus is walking alongside people rather than lifting their burden. Pretty shocking. So it turns out there's not just one way to love people, there's two ways. One way is to pour it all out, empty yourself until you're a shell of a human and you're feeling unappreciated and all full of self-pity. It's a terrible way to live. The other way is to first put the oxygen mask on your own face. As Jesus did when he got away from the crowds and while it was still early, he went to a quiet place and enjoyed the company of his loving father. Yep, you can pour it all out, but you can also fill yourself up and love out of the overflow. You can walk alongside more than you carry a burden. That's the challenge for those of us who are enmeshed. So, just as we close this episode, three simple questions. What is mine to carry? What is theirs to carry? What is God's to carry? What is mine to carry? What is theirs to carry? What is God's to carry? This is the challenge of enmeshed people, is we carry what is not ours to carry, and we believe the lie that that's honoring God. It's not. I'm just, you can decide I'm crazy, but I'm here to tell you, listen, I'm a pastor, I should know these things, I'm a gospel guy. It's not. And so next time you notice yourself anxious about another person, maybe you could just get out a journal and draw three columns. And simply make a list. Mine, theirs, and God's. Now, what's yours to carry? That's what you take responsibility for. What's theirs and God's? That's what you pray about and give it to God and trust that God is a better carer of that person than you are. That God knows what's going on in their head and you do not have the right to that information and that you can rest in Christ. You can relax into the grace of God. All right. So our next podcast, we're doing this a bit backwards. Uh, We'll wrap up the differentiation series. I'm actually going to teach what differentiation is, how you know when you're differentiating, and the five steps to practice differentiation. That's coming up. But thanks for joining me, and look forward to catching you on the next episode. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.